Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Good evening, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Kerry Curtis, chair of the club's Environment and Natural Resources Forum, and your chair for this evening's program. We invite our listeners on the radio, and we invite our audience to visit us on the internet at CommonwealthClub.org. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Alan Weissman. Alan is an award-winning journalist whose work has appeared in Harper's, the New York Times Magazine, the Atlantic Monthly, Discover, the Los Angeles Times Magazine, and he's been on NPR. He also teaches international journalism at the University of Arizona. His essay of a couple of years ago, called Earth Without People in Discover Magazine, was selected for Best American Science Writing 2006, and that led to an expanded version, which is the book that has just been published, uh, The World Without Us, which I have finished and which I can tell you is fantastic. The book is for sale out front uh, after, the, after the meeting. Without further ado, I give you Alan Weissman. Thank you. What a pleasure to be at the Commonwealth Club. I have had the great privilege in my career of, as a journalist of covering the most important story on Earth, which is to say, the Earth. It has taken me to some incredible places, some of the most beautiful places on Earth, and sometimes some of the most frightening places on Earth, and sometimes more and more those become the same places. In Antarctica, which is utterly magnificent, I've had to look up at the ozone hole. In the Amazon, uh, alongside the forest, are the flames that are bringing it down and the, and the saws. I went back to my father's homeland, Ukraine, where the topsoil is a mile deep, but much of it has been contaminated by Chernobyl. The frozen Arctic, the thawing Arctic, you, you know this drill. Well, the more that I have seen, the more that I've learned, the more that I've understood that there are connections among all these places and all these things that are turning beautiful places into crises on our planet that we're going to have to deal with. And at the same time, the more difficult my job has become as my understanding of how all these things connect has increased. Because when you take them all together, you begin to understand that where they connect is through us. And when you think about what do we do now, it feels sometimes just plain overwhelming, uh, if not you know, simply depressing or even, or even terrifying. So I find myself in a situation that in order to communicate what I really want to say, I'm in the risk of just alienating my audience because who the hell wants to read this stuff? I mean, you know, I don't. It's just so depressing sometimes. So I realized that I needed to find a way to tell the story and the complete story without pulling any punches and yet do it from some fresh, unexpected direction. Some approach, approach that would be so intriguing 
that readers would stop worrying about basically at the bottom line what it is that we're all worried about. Are we all going to die? And just think about, well, well, let me let me explain to you what I did. Instead of to diffuse the fear over that question, uh, I simply wiped this out. <laughs> on this on the second page, uh, I I just posited a world. I mean, as far fetched as this might seem, but but just. You know, well, it's kind of a mind game. Um, let's 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 put it this way: we're going to need some creative solutions to deal with what's going on on the planet. Some real creative solutions. So I pose a creative experiment. Suppose that the worst has already happened; that human extinction is an accomplished fact. Not by nuclear calamity or asteroid collision or anything so ruinous to also uh, wipe out everything else, which would leave everything else in some radically altered or reduced state. Nor by some grim eco-scenario, which we agonizingly fade and drag many more species with us in the process. But just picture a world from which we all suddenly vanished. Tomorrow. It's unlikely, perhaps, but for the sake of argument, it's not impossible. Say, for example, a homo sapiens-specific virus, natural or diabolically nano-engineered, picks us off but leaves everything else intact. Or some misanthropic evil wizard somehow targets that unique 3.9% of DNA that makes us human beings and not chimpanzees. Or perfects a way to sterilize our sperm. Or say that Jesus or space aliens rapture us away, either to our heavenly glory or to some zoo somewhere across the galaxy. But look around you. I mean, look at today's world. Look at your house. Look at your city. Look at the surrounding land, the pavement underneath, the soil hidden beneath that, and to leave it all in place but extract the human beings. Wipe us out and see what's left. How would the rest of nature respond if it were suddenly relieved of the relentless pressures we heap on it and our fellow organisms? How soon would, or could, the climate return to where it was before we all fired up our engines? How long would it take to recover lost ground and restore Eden to the way that it must have gleamed and smelled the day before Adam, or Homo habilis, the predecessor of Homo sapiens, appeared? Could nature ever obliterate all of our traces? I mean, how would it undo our monumental cities and our public works and reduce our myriad plastics and toxic synthetics back to benign basic elements? or some of them so unnatural that they're indestructible. And what of our finest creations, our architecture, our art, our many manifestations of spirit? Are any truly timeless, at least enough so to last until the sun expands and reduces the earth to a cinder? And even after that, might we have left some faint, enduring mark on the universe, some lasting glow or echo of earthly humanity, some interplanetary sign that once we were here. Well, to get a sense of how the world would go on without us, among other places, we have to look at the world before us. Now, we're not time travelers. The fossil record is only a fragmentary sampling. But even if that record were complete, the future won't perfectly mirror the past because we've ground some species so thoroughly into extinction that they or their DNA likely will never spring back. 
And since some things that we've done are likely irrevocable, whatever would remain in our absence would not be the same planet had we never evolved in the first place. Yet it might not be so different either, because nature's been through worse losses before, and it's refilled many empty niches. And even today, there are still a few earthly spots where all our senses can inhale a living memory of this Eden before we were here. And inevitably, they invite us to wonder how nature might flourish if given the chance. Now, since we're imagining, why not also dream of a way for nature to prosper that doesn't depend on our demise? We are, after all, mammals ourselves. Now, every life form adds to this vast pageant. And with our passing, might some lost contribution of ours leave the planet a little bit more impoverished? Is it possible that instead of heaving a huge biological sigh of relief, the world without us would miss us? Well, thus begins my book, The World Without Us. And in order to give my readers an idea of what that world would be, uh, I needed to first take them to a couple of familiar places, ease them into this idea of a world very different. But what I found out very early in my research, in fact, the very first place that I went to research, was that sometimes what can be familiar is, or what is really familiar is actually quite surprising. For instance, I'm going to read you just a little bit more. You may never have heard of the Biala Visa Pusha. But if you were raised somewhere in the temperate swath that crosses much of North America and Japan and Korea, several Soviet, former Soviet republics, much of China or Turkey and Eastern and Western Europe, including the British Isles, something within you remembers it. Push is an old Polish world, word, and it means forest primeval. Straddling the border between Poland and Belarus, the half million acres of the Bialowice Pusha contained Europe's last remaining fragment of old-growth lowland forest. Think of the b- misty, brooding wilderness that loomed behind your eyelids when, as a child, someone read to you the Grimm Brothers' fairy tales. I mean, here, ashen and li- ash and linden trees tower nearly 150 feet, and their huge canopies shade this moist understory. Tangled hornbeams and ferns and swamp alders, crockery-sized fungi. You've got oaks that are shrouded with a half a millennium of moss, and they're so immense that great spotted woodpeckers will store spruce cones in their three-inch deep furrows, bark furrows. The air is thick and cool and draped with a silence that parts briefly for a nutcracker's croak or a pygmy owl's whistle, a wolf's wail, and then it just returns to stillness. There's fragrance here that wafts from eons of accumulated mulch in the forest core. It, it harkens to fertility's very or- origins. In the Bialavisa, the profusion of all that is life owes much to all that is dead, because almost a quarter of the organic mass there is c- comprised of decomposing trunks and fallen branches on every acre. And they nourish thousands of species of mushrooms and lichens, bark beetles, grubs, microbes which are largely missing from the orderly managed woodlands that pass for forests somewhere else. Together, those species stock a sylvan larder that provides for weasels and pine martens, raccoons, badgers, otters, fox, lynx, wolves, roe deer, elk, eagles, bison, bison in Europe. 
More kinds of life are found here than anywhere else on the continent, yet there are no surrounding mountains or sheltering valleys to form some unique niche for endemic species. The Biala of Isopusha is simply a relic of what once stretched east to Siberia and west to Ireland. Well, the existence in Europe of such a legacy of unbroken biological antiquity owes unsurprisingly to high privilege. During the 14th century, a Lithuanian duke successfully allied his duchy to the Kingdom of Poland by marrying the queen, and he declared the forest a royal hunting preserve. For centuries, it stayed that way. Uh, when the Polish-Lithuanian Union was subsumed later by Russia, uh, the Bialovice became the private domain of the czars. And though occupying Germans took lumber and slaughtered game during World War I, a pristine core was left intact. In 1921, that became a Polish national park. The timber pillaging resumed briefly under the Soviets. But then when the Nazis invaded, a nature fanatic named Hermann Goering, uh, that old lover of life, declared, de- decreed the entire preserves off limits except by his pleasure and to his, his fellow nature lovers. Uh, well, there's some more interesting history involving how they got Joseph Stalin drunk in Poland to preserve the forest. But the point that I want you to make is, uh, that I want to make to you, is how startling it is when you're there to think that all Europe once looked like this place. To enter it is to realize that most of us were bred to a pale copy of what nature really intended. And seeing these elders with trunks seven feet wide or walking through stands of the tallest trees, which are these gigantic Norway pine, and they're shaggy as Methuselah. It should seem as exotic as the Amazon or Antarctica to someone who's been raised among the comparatively puny second-growth woodlands which are found throughout most of the northern hemisphere. But instead, what's astonishing is how primally familiar it feels, and at some cellular level, how complete. Because our bodies remember when the world was fresh. You know, it was really interesting to me. uh, When I started working on this, and people would ask me, what are you doing? And I said, I'm writing this book about you know, what the world would be like without people in it. And nearly 90% of the responses I would get was, oh, God, that sounds so great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I mean, just, I forgot. I mean, it's, yes, get rid of us. You know? But then, you know, we'd talk a little more. And then the, the, the second reaction, it would sort of come as an afterthought almost, but it was, you know, but geez, wouldn't that be a shame if in order to, for nature to really be complete again, that, that, that would require us to, to vanish? And so I really began to understand that if I was going to get into this book, there were some things that I have to do. And, and particularly... I had to talk about the fact, as I mentioned before, we're mammals. I mean, you know, we earned a place here. We evolved along with everything else that's still alive. That wasn't easy. I mean, we should, we have a rightful position on this planet. But what is the proper balance between us and the rest of nature? Because, you know, unfortunately, we've become walled off from a lot of nature. And I I realized that I had to deal with you know, with those walls. I mean, how did that take place? So, um, I'll just—I'll give you a little fragment of this. Uh, the walls. On the day after humans disappear, nature takes over and immediately begins cleaning house, or houses—that is, as it cleans them right off the face of the earth. They all go. 
Now, if you're a homeowner, you already knew it was only a matter of time for yours. <laughs> but you've resisted admitting it, even as erosion callously attacks, starting with your savings. I mean, back when they told you what your house would cost, nobody mentioned what you'd also be paying so that nature wouldn't repossess it long before the bank. And even if you live in a denatured postmodern subdivision where heavy machines mash the landscape into submission, replacing unruly native flora with obedient sod and uniform saplings, paving wetlands in the righteous name of mosquito control, even then you knew that nature wasn't phased. No matter how hermetically you've sealed your temperature-tuned interior from the weather, invisible spores penetrate anyway, exploding in sudden outbursts of mold, which is awful when you see it, and worse when you don't, because it's hidden behind a painted wall, munching paper sandwiches of gypsum board and, and rotting studs and floor joists. You've been colonized by termites or carpenter ants, roaches, small mammals. But most of all, you are beset by, in what other contexts, is the veritable stuff of life, water. It always wants in. So after we're gone, nature's revenge for our smug mechanized superiority arrives waterborne. It starts with wood frame construction, which is the, the most widely used residential building technique in the developed world. You have a lot of beautiful examples of that here in San Francisco. Begins on the roof, which is probably asphalt or, or slight shingle. It's warranted to last two or three decades, but that warranty never counts around the chimney, which is where the first leak occurs. Uh, I know some of you have skylights. It's the same thing. As the flashing separates under rain's relentless, insistent water sneaks beneath the shingles, flows across these four-by-eight sheets of, of sheathing, which are made either of plywood or, if newer, of wood chipboard, which is composed of these uh, three- to four-inch flakes of timber, which are bonded together by resin. Now, newer isn't necessarily better. Werner von Braun, the German scientist who developed the U.S. space program, used to tell a story about Colonel John Glenn, who was the first American to orbit the Earth. Seconds before lip, liftoff, with Glenn strapped into that rocket we built for him and man's best efforts all focused on the moment, you know what he said to himself? Oh, my God, I'm sitting on a pile of low bids. <laughs> well, in your new house, you're sitting under one. And on the one hand, that's all right. By building things so cheaply and lightly, we use fewer of the world's resources. Uh, but on the other hand, the massive trees that yielded the great wooden posts and beams that still, still support medieval European and Japanese and early American walls are now too precious and rare. So we're left to, do, to make do with gluing together smaller boards and scraps. Well, I go on here to describe uh, what happens as the water finds its way into these so supposedly waterproof wood chip boards. You know, they seal the edges, but... They forgot the fact that you have to nail into them. So the water gets into the nail, and that invites all these fungi, and these fungi send out these little filaments that have learned how to, um, how to digest all the material. They learn how to digest cellulose, and they learn how to digest lignin. I want you to remember that, because I'm only going to mention it later. Um, eventually... The, as the sheathing starts to go, the trusses, you know, those big braces, they start to, to totter because the sheathing is also there to provide structural integrity, and it all just goes to hell, and after a while the laws are leaning, 
one way or the other, and eventually the roof falls in, probably an untended house will, you know, about 50, 50 years, 100 tops. Well, there's a lot of grisly detail about this in here, uh, which I'm not going to punish you homeowners with a little further because I, the question comes up in a reader's mind at that point. Well, okay, a wood frame house. But, you know, what about these things that are made out of steel and concrete? You know, how could nature, could nature dent, put a dent in a city? So I went to Manhattan. Uh, which is kind of the epitome of all cities. You know, it's an island that's just filled with these, filled with buildings, and it's recognizable to everybody. Either they've either been there or they've seen it in the movies. And I asked people, uh, could this island revert to the forest that was there before, you know, when Henry Hudson first saw it? And the answer turned out to be, after talking to many city engineers, many civil engineers, architects, um, city maintenance people and biologists and botanists from New York Botanical Garden is that it surely could and in fact it would, except it would be somewhat of a different forest than it was before. The demolition of New York City and it, it's, it's been really interesting, I've been to New York uh, and people have interviewed me and said, God, you know, it was really fun that part where you dismantle Manhattan. Um, I'm glad people see the humor in that, and that's probably something within us that, you know, it's kind of fun to watch something fall apart, particularly when it's make-believe, and right now it is make-believe. But the destruction of the city starts, again, with water. And one of the side benefits that I wasn't expecting from doing this book is that I have come away with immense respect, which I hope that we all can engender for the maintenance people who hold our civilization together. Because if it wasn't for a few of these unsung heroes, man, this thing would fall apart really fast. I went underneath the, the city into the subways with subway maintenance people. I haven't studied BART, but I imagine it's a similar situation. New York used to be a very hilly island. Unlike San Francisco, they planed the whole thing off to superimpose the grid. Well, among those hills, because it was a much rainier regime over there, uh, 40 streams used to run around the around all of these hills and drain the island. There was a lake where the Plaza Hotel is now, and one of them ran off to the East River. There were streams coming into it off of that ridge line where uh, wildcats and uh, used to chase deer, called Broadway. Uh, lots of springs, Spring Street. Anyhow, all that water got shoved underground. Uh, and part of it goes into the sewer system, but a, a man-made sewer system cannot mimic nature perfectly. So the subway guys showed me, you know, in the pump rooms below the tracks, you just see incredible waterfalls of groundwater rushing in all the time. Even on a uh, dry day, a sunny day, 13 million gallons. And they have to keep 800 pumps going to pump it uphill to get it out of there. So what happens if they disappear, or if the personnel from the power plants disappear and the pumps go off, the subway fills with water. And then all those steel columns that are holding up the ceilings, 
start to corrode, and as they buckle, the ceiling, which is actually, of course, the street, starts to collapse, and pretty soon Lexington Avenue is lying underwater, and we have a surface water. We have a river again there, and birds start dropping shells and little fish in it by mistake, and then we have a colonized river. In the meantime, pavement has been breaking up, and this would even happen here. the people who maintain your sidewalks can tell you that whenever you get a freeze, uh, San Francisco gets freezes in the winter, never? Oh, okay. Well, know then that your infrastructure will outlast some of the other ones in those northern cities. How clever of you. Um, yes, you do, yes. Um, but in cities where there are freezes. During March, the temperature zips back and forth across 32 degrees. When the snow melts, it runs off into little cracks in the sidewalk, and the cracks get bigger when it freezes because freezing expands you know, the water into ice. And then in April, seeds blow into it. And there are many examples in this book about how a little tiny seed can suddenly blossom into something that can push aside concrete as if it, were, as if it weren't even there. And... At the same time, and here you're going to have a chance to be smug again, the uncountable number of plastic bags that are blowing around most of the cities in the world, uh, except for a very few exceptions that have outlawed them, or are in the process of doing that, in my applause, uh, all those plastic bags are going to clog the drains. And leaf litter is going to collect on them because no one's raking the leaves. And seedlings are going to form. You know, seeds will germinate in that nice mulchy stuff. And you will have, even before the pavement breaks, you're going to start having lines of trees going down the streets. Well, I, I again describe this invasion of, of plant life uh, in a lot more detail. But I went to New York Botanical Gardens to find out, well, what exactly would be growing there? New York Botanical Garden has a 40-acre old-growth plot, never been logged. And yet a lot of the native species aren't doing very well. They haven't procreated or very much in the past 80 years because they have been fighting off diseases because they've been weakened by heavy metal deposition from fumes of automobiles, industry, etc. And uh, in their stead... Uh, oftentimes some invasive species, ornamentals that came in elsewhere, have uh, taken over a lot of the understory there. Um, At the same time, every squirrel that's left in the Bronx, which is where the botanical garden is, crossed from the Bronx Zoo, has taken refuge there. So every hickory nut or oak, you know, acorn that falls, they eat before it gets a chance to germinate. So I asked... um, a guy named Chuck Peters, who's a curator of botany there, well, is this really sad? I mean, what do you think? We're not going to have the original forest, even if you know, all the people disappeared. You know, I asked him, could the native species you know, fight off all of these uh, invaders? And he made an interesting observation. He said, you know, what makes this a great city the way that we think of it as a city is its cultural diversity. You know, everyone has something to offer. But botanically, we've we become so xenophobic. You know, we love native species, but we want the exotic species to all go back where they came from. And he said, you know, this might sound blasphemous, but maintaining biodiversity is less important than maintaining a functioning ecosystem. What matters is that soil is protected and that water is cleaned 
and that trees filter the air, that a canopy regenerates new seedlings to keep nutrients from draining away into the Bronx River. And he talked about his field research, where he's gone to see these pockets of wild palm trees or wild nut trees growing in the Amazon, or durian fruit trees in virgin Borneo, or the tea trees in Burma's jungles. He says, those aren't accidents, because once humans were there too. The wilderness swallowed them in their memory, but the shape of the forest still bears their echo, as will this one. Well, we have been part of this ecosystem. To understand how the world was before us, I talked to paleoecologists to explain that humans have really left their mark. Each time they showed up at a different landmass, they encountered animals that we don't encounter today. There were more animals larger than a, thousand, than a ton, three times as many species of megafauna here in North America alone as there are in Africa today. And there's a lot of controversy as to exactly why they got wiped out, what happened to them. Um, I go into that here, but it's highly suspicious that the disappearance of these animals seem to coincide with the appearance of Homo sapiens on all these different land masses. But then, well, I decided I wanted to go back to Africa, and which is a continent that still has megafauna. And I wanted to just get a feeling of what the landscape was like. But I had to understand, well, how come Africa still has big animals? And it turns out because Homo sapiens, it appears, and all of our predecessors evolved in Africa. And the animals of today evolved alongside of us. And they learned various evasive tactics to not let the newest predator on the block pick off all of them, much as they have adapted so... You know, there'll always be more gazelles and zebras than there are lions, etc. Which then led me to consider, well, why did we evolve in the first place? And eventually I found myself in the forest where Jane Goodall has been studying chimpanzees for many years. I wanted to look a wild chimpanzee in the eyes and pose a question. Uh, you know, chimpanzees and us have a common ancestor. But at a certain point, they stayed in the trees, and we took off. We went and, and started roaming and discovered new things uh, and new ways to survive in new places. Well, when you confront the chimpanzee, they're not particularly intimidated. Uh, I was staring into very intelligent eyes. I can't tell you that I really understood any communication that may or may not have been taking place. But I did get a sense that this animal was quite comfortable where it was and was looking at me at best with detached curiosity. And I started wondering, well, maybe the reason why we went off and did all the things that we've done isn't just because we were such great visionaries that we wanted to see what was beyond the horizon and, and be these intrepid explorers, but because at the time when these two branches of our primate family separated. There were ice ages that were repeatedly taking place, and whenever so much moisture was locked up in other parts of the world in an ice cap, Africa would be undergoing a drought, and the forests would shrink. And when forests shrink, the resources shrink, and there are fewer trees to support the population. 
So there probably was some kind of free-for-all going on in the forest, a big fight to see who got to stay and who got to go. And it's quite possible that instead of the grand explorers, we were the losers. We got kicked out by the ones who got to stay. And we literally had to learn to stand on our own two feet so we could see over that grass in the savannah and, and, and see how a predator, you know, see predators that might be coming at us. Well, we have to thank our ancestors. They did a pretty good job. And obviously, we went forth, we multiplied, and we did a lot of interesting things. Um, we did a lot of marvelous things. Some of the things that I touch on in this book are fascinating, but they're also alarming. I mean, I look at our plastics, and I'm not going to belabor that one because that's an issue that San Francisco has been coming to grips with. But it's pretty extraordinary, the amount of plastic that is now blowing, most of it actually into the sea because everything eventually goes to the sea, and plastic being much lighter than stone it gets there a lot faster, and there's a raft of plastic refuge this, uh, the size of a continent now circulating around the South Pacific. And I talked to scientists who have been studying the shorelines of England and Europe, uh, and they realize that so much of the detritus that they're finding on the shore now isn't just bits of organic matter, it's bits of plastic that are being broken up by wave action. And as it gets smaller and smaller, it gets ingested by smaller and smaller creatures, some of whom, upon which we depend. I mean, there are places in the Atlantic where, or in the Pacific, in fact, in, in all three oceans, where there is six times as much plastic mass on the surface as there is plankton. Now, that's pretty serious. That's the base of our food web right there. And it's not just plastic that we throw out, but now that you've done a good job on dealing with plastic bags, and I guess plastic bottles are finding their way out as well, um, I have to ask the women in the audience to, any of you who use one of those nice facial scrubs that you know, feels so good, the texture you know, rubs away dead skin cells, look at the ingredients. Some of them are apricot shells ground up or jojoba beans, that's good. Most of them say microbeads made out of polyethylene. We are flushing plastic knowingly down the drain every single, or unknowingly, I mean the manufacturers certainly know. I look at our nuclear plants. Um, you know, I went to Chernobyl, and Chernobyl's very interesting. Uh, we have a lot of organisms that got, you know, annihilated in the original blast, and then gradually, uh, by the time I first got there, uh, six years after the reactor uh, exploded, or burned, I should say, uh, something remarkable had happened. In the 30-kilometer radius evacuated zone around the reactor, the biodiversity was much higher than it is outside the zone where human beings are. It's just it's a better habitat for animals and plants to be even in a radioactive area. However, they are undergoing genetic damage. Uh, we can tell because some of them are being born with strange spots, like swallows, or they're living, they have shorter lifespans. But nature is out there trying its best. Uh, there's a population of voles that they're studying right now that even though its lifespan has been shortened, it's reaching sexual maturity earlier. It's throwing off bigger broods, which is increasing the possibility that among all those offspring, there might be some that develop 
or are born with more tolerance to radiation. If that's successful, then evolution will take another one of its little funny turns. If it's not, then we'll lose another species. And if all the human beings were to disappear and nobody was maintaining our nuclear plants and bless those people who show up for work every day, the, the plants would automatically click off, emergency generators would click on to keep the coolant water going around the reactors. But they'll run out of diesel power, which runs those things within about seven days. And that coolant will be around a hot reactor core and it will evaporate. And as it evaporates and it exposes the core, depending on how much fuel is actually in it, where it's at in its cycle, it'll either burst into flames or it'll melt down. And multiply that by 440, that's about the number of nuke plants we have in the world, and that's going to be a lot of Chernobyls out there that nature is going to have to then try to, try to deal with. Well, there are signs of life everywhere that I go. I go to some abandoned places in this book, um, warfare has caused people to leave the demilitarized zone of Korea. And even though you've got two of the most hostile armies on earth facing each other off, and they're so close, they can see each other. It's amazing to be there. And, you, and they scream propaganda at one another. And into the middle of this whole thing, this two and a half mile wide strip, you, you can watch one of the world's rarest birds the red crown crane, second rarest crane after the whooping crane, the holy bird, I mean, you all know what it looks like because you've seen it in Japanese paintings and in, in, in Korean iconography. It's, it's the national bird there. Of the 1,100 left, most of them winter in the DMZ, and they just float in in the middle of all this, these mortars and armaments, and they just settle down, and they're so light they don't touch off any landmines, and they just pick at the wilderness that has grown up where there used to be 5,000 years worth of rice paddies. I mean, talk about walking into a metaphor. It's amazing. On the other side uh, of the world, I went to Cyprus, which also has a DMZ, and just before the war that separated the Turkish side from the Greek side, Greek Cypriots had built a seaside resort. New high-rises, you know, long lining, uh, lining a beach. You've all seen it somewhere in the world. Uh, it ended up on the Turkish side. The Turks very astutely put a barbed wire fence around it, didn't let anybody in there because they knew this very valuable real estate would be a great bargaining chip for when the island talked about reunification, which in 33 years it has yet to do. But no people are in there that hasn't stopped nature from going in there now. And the ornamental plants, the philodendrons, the bougainvillea, it's all growing through the roof. It's, you know, birds have colonized it. Rats have colonized it. Uh, the beach, there's sunbathing all over the place. It's all sea turtles now. And there's sand dunes in the, in the lobbies of the hotels. None of those buildings, most of them are standing, but none of them is salvageable at this point. It doesn't take very long for our newest stuff to break down. Well, at a certain point in the book, I start looking at us, to try to get a sense of, okay, so where do we go from here? What do we do with this? And... You know, it's not, I was interested, you know, not just some of the alarming things that we've left, but what about the beautiful things we've done? What about our art, our spirit? And as I was talking to metal experts about what metal alloys last the longest, it turns out that bronze will probably last longer than almost anything. So those pre-1983 pennies before they started, you know, you drop a penny out, it doesn't even sound like anything. 
the, the old ones, which were bronze, they're going to last a long time. Um, bronze sculpture uh, stands the chance of lasting millions some years. My wife's a bronze sculptor. I think that's very fitting. She thinks it's a lot of pressure, actually. <laughs> um, but I, I, I went further. I, I had a thrilling interview with a man named John Lomborg, who was an artist hired by Carl Sagan to design the package of art that would be appended to the Voyager spacecraft that have now already left the solar system. It contains many of the sounds and images of our planet and also of many cultures throughout the world. The sounds of indigenous peoples, the music of our culture, the music of Chuck Berry and the Queen of the Nights aria from Mozart's Magic Flute, uh, which has the highest note in the operatic repertoire, which is sort of symbolic of the highest reaches of our expression. And it's, it's comforting on some level to think that that stuff will keep going out there. Even more so, our radio waves, we keep broadcasting them. We're broadcasting right now, and this conversation might be out there for something to hear us someday or other. But ultimately, you know, that great future way out there, that's nice. And it is nice for me to know how resilient life is, that, that we've gone through incredible extinctions in the history. That our, an extinction expert at the Smithsonian, Douglas Irwin, said to me, yeah, you know, the, everything goes extinct sooner or later. It's just like everything, everybody dies sooner or later. I mean, you can't stop that. And he said, you know, yes, we have become a geologic force, and we're causing things to, to go extinct. But, but look at the Permian extinction. I mean, 250 million years ago, Half the world blew up in a volcanic explosion that came right through a whole bed of coal the size of Siberia. Now, now talk about global warming. And, and then an asteroid hit Antarctica on top of all that. And when it was left, about 90% of everything alive was gone. It was just some little shells and you know, shelled creatures in the seas. And they eventually crawled out and they did it all over again. And we got an age of dinosaurs, which was pretty damn impressive. And then another asteroid, and so there was another dieback, and then everything just started over again, and eventually it got us. So in the long run, there's no problem. Life is resilient. Life is going to do fine. But it comes down to, for us, in this lifespan of ours, which we really value, I mean, I want to stay alive for a while, and I want you all to as well. But how can we somehow take the earth that I described throughout this book that would come back in such wonderful, miraculous healing ways and get to be a part of it ourselves. Well, I'm not going to belabor with you the stuff that you already know, how we can be using materials better, recycling more, how we can be more efficient with the amount of energy that we use, partly because you know this and partly because there are limitations we don't really have renewable energy that could run our world the way that we want to run it yet. Solar, wind, th those things are great, but they're not very concentrated. We can't run vehicles off of them yet. It's complicated, and I, you know, we know theoretically what to do, but putting that into reality is very complicated, and we haven't solved those issues. Biodiesel, well, I've got a whole chapter in here about the third of the terrestrial earth that has been devoted to food production, either grazing or planting. And now we want to grow energy crops too? Well, do the math. And while you're at it, do the math on us. It's not so much what we do, but it's how many of us there are doing it.
So at the very end of this book, after I've just sort of described things and haven't really preached at all, I do raise an interesting question because it hasn't been raised very much for the past 10, 15 years. And that is, why aren't we talking about how many of us there are and what we might do about that? At the beginning of the 20th century, 1.6 billion. At the beginning of the 21st century, 6.6 billion. At the middle of this century, it'll be 9 billion, according to the, to the United Nations. So I called around to demographers. I started by calling the zero population growth people to say, what would happen if we, I mean, here's another fantasy, mind game. What, what if starting tomorrow, everybody just had one child, every family? What would happen? Well, first of all, I couldn't find the zero growth population people. They're gone. Or, or I guess they're still there, but they've changed their name because there was so much political pressure that was heaped on them that they just backed off that phrase. It was very volatile. I kept looking. I got a researcher. And finally, I found a demographic institute in Europe, very distinguished, based in Vienna. And they said, hmm, that's interesting. Let's run the numbers. They ran the numbers, and they said, you know what? Look at this graph. In a century, we'd be back down to 1.6 billion. Wow. Well, that would buy us some time on this planet. And it would give some space to the rest of nature. All of us remember, even in our lifetimes, not back to 1900, we remember when there was more space. So what's the chances of that actually happening? Well, not great. But, you know... Ten years ago, I didn't think people would be talking about global warming. I thought they would stay in perpetual denial, and finally they're talking about it. It comes down, to, comes down to this. Every population of every creature in biological history of the Earth that has eaten to the limits of its resource base suffers a population crash. And we surely will, too. Now, the question is, do we want to manage it and do it gracefully, or do we want to let nature do it for us? Nature is beautiful, but man, it's ruthless. It has no problem extinguishing species when some other species comes along or some other need comes up. So it's really up to us. Are we going to do it, or are we going to sit here and let it be done? Thank you very much. I'll take some questions. Our thanks to Alan Weissman. Uh, this is a program of the Commonwealth Club of California. Uh, Alan is the author of the recently published book, The World Without Us. And now we have time for some audience questions. I'll, I have one for you, Alan. Um, I was amused. The man to, with the mic. <laughs> I was amused to uh, read your. It seemed like that your your your. You were saying that the, the piece of human art that would live the longest would be Mount Rushmore. Um, not the longest, but it would be one that would be... I mean, we, I just did the math on, on granite erosion. You know, I, I, I'd study to see what that thing is made out of. And probably, let's see, 7.2 million years, uh, enough of Teddy Roosevelt's nose will be gone that... It's not going to look much like a nose, but the rest of him is still going to be there, including his spectacles. So um, 
and, and I chose Teddy because I, I do have a portion in this book about what, how long would it take for the Panama Canal, which of course was his baby, one of the greatest engineering feats of all humanity. How long would it take for it just to close up and reunite the Americas? Um, that would happen within probably two decades, uh, but Teddy would last about 7.2 million years. Yes. <laughs> Hi. Um, in the short time that I've uh, been around, uh, I've observed that uh, the greed really sort of drives every decision uh, that government makes. And is it really possible, to, in your opinion, that uh, that will force change rather than nature making changes for us? Well, you know, greed is kind of a defense, self-defense mechanism, and I think that those things are inbred. We are not the only greedy territorial creatures by any means, and our siblings, the chimpanzees, certainly, you know, they can be nasty to one another and downright brutal and violent. So I think it's part of our human nature or mammalian nature that we have to work with. But, you know, it is interesting that human beings seem to be educable and there are examples that we could move beyond it. Um, you know, the arguments against this birth control thing that I throw out here are sometimes, you know, faith-based. It's against, you know, religion doesn't want us to do that, and, and it legislates, you know, against it. Um, it has to do with economics. Uh, in the first World Population Conference, which was held in Mexico City in 84, it was then the biggest city on earth. It's been now surpassed, not to say that it shrunk. Uh, the United States government, under a former governor of yours who was then president, uh, sent a representative, James Buckley, William F. Buckley's brother, who argued that population control was really another way of saying abortion rights, and they were against that. But also, and this was his main argument, he says, you know, we want people to multiply because then there'll always be more consumers for more products and more markets, and this will bring more prosperity. Well, the idea of economics as perpetual growth makes about as much sense as a chain letter. You know, eventually, it just, you know, it just collapses. And the collapsing point is that we run out of stuff to make things out of, or we run out of the basis, you know, the air, the, the soil. I'm speaking in shorthand here because you all know about this. The idea of an economy that recycles stuff constantly and doesn't have to keep getting bigger but just has enough so it can keep replenishing, that's the way we mimic nature. And that would really work. And here's an example in the real world right now that also deals with the religious uh, issue. One of the most prosperous countries on earth right now is also one of the countries that has the lowest uh, birth rates in the world. It's called Italy. It, that's a country that also hosts something called the Vatican, which puts a lot of pressure on Italians who are Catholics to have a lot of kids. And the Italians, you know, they go to mass, they love the Pope, they're only having slightly over one kid per family right now. And, I mean, look at that place. It's got a terrific economy. And, I mean, have you ever seen anybody having as much fun as the Italians? <laughs> I mean, you know, we go, it's just wonderful. They've got great truffles and wine and bread and olive oil and all this good stuff. I mean, that to me, that's prosperity. More questions?
Uh, yeah, I have uh, an observation of a local work of fiction that echoes a lot of your work. Uh, it's by a man who used to teach at UC Berkeley named uh, George Stewart. A book is called Earth Abides. Are you familiar with it? It's in my bibliography. Ah. I, you know, I read a lot of the canon of literature about what would happen if there were no people or endgame literature for this. And I'm learning more because people are coming up to me after talks and suggesting other books. But George Stewart's book, and I understand uh, that it is in print. Uh, again, it was, it was written in 1948. Very interesting book because it, it, it actually goes into an area that I don't delve in here. He, pos- um, he poses the idea of a homo sapiens-specific virus that picks off everybody except there are a few survivors because they had uh, immunity for one reason or another. And he follows what happens when they discover each other and they form little you know, mini-societies that start over. But they're surrounded by a world that already has a lot of stuff in it, starting with the grocery stores. There's all this canned good. You know, so they don't really need agriculture because they've got food in there and there's a lot of tools. And then he shows that for, gradually the tools either break down or like the vehicles, they run out of gasoline. And, and at a certain point, you need a critical mass of human beings to be able to maintain a technology to the extent that even in 1948 one had developed. So it gave a sense that humans were destined to go back to something and then really start all over again. And... You know, James Lovelock, who wrote the Gaia books, who's now come out with something called The Revenge of Gaia, uh, is suggesting that maybe that's what we could be looking at if we don't get our act together very soon, that there are going to be a couple of viable populations huddling together at the poles, which would be the last place where the temperature is livable, until things die down, and then we'll start over again. I hope it doesn't come to that. And I also just had a very quick question. You compare uh, the future fate of domestic dogs and domestic cats, and I think you said that the dogs are out and the cats are going to stay, and I'm interested in why you think so. Well, um, for this reason, I mean, you know, there are some wild species of dogs out there that have, you know, they were never domesticated in the first place. On this continent, we're talking about coyotes and we're talking about wolves. And they will spread real quickly, and they're just much more adept at surviving in the wild. Now, interestingly enough, um, the Australian dingo was actually a pet of Indonesian traders, and they brought them to Australia, and some escaped, and they grew wild, but they did not have a competitor. Our dogs here will have competitors. Now, I think some of the big ones will probably mate with, uh, I, I know personally cases of, of uh, quiche hounds that have been inseminated by coyotes uh, to the horror of their owners. So, so, you know, maybe some dog strains will go on. Cats are really interesting, though. The um, what's it called? Felis sylvestris. Is, uh, this is a species that exists in the wild even today around the Mediterranean. They're in Africa, they're in Asia, and they're in Europe. And when colonists brought them over here from England in the 1600s, it wasn't that they were you know, domesticated and have now gone feral. These creatures have never been domesticated. They are very, very adept opportunists that just take advantage. And they have learned that you know, there's this lumbering creature on two feet that will feed us and shelter us. And great, they will accept that. But once outside, they, they don't revert. They are already still wild creatures. 
most of you who have cats, you have seen that hunting behavior when they go out there. And the interesting thing about it is that cats don't need to be hungry. They will just keep hunting for the sheer pleasure of it, which sounds like another creature that I know. And I've got some research in here. It's, I mean, it's really, it's, I love cats. I've had them. I mean, they're great to live with, but man, in the state of Wisconsin alone, up to 100 million songbirds would survive every year just from the feral cat population that is, that is preying on them. Uh, you know, this, this species is just perfectly sized for songbirds. They are so successful that they are starting to outnumber raccoons and weasels, other animals that are in their niche. And some figures that were gathered and then reported by the U.S. Census Bureau indicate that in the last 30 years alone, the population of so-called domestic house cats has doubled in the United States from 30 million to 60 million. Those things are going to do just fine without us. They're there to stay. My question is along the same lines of reasoning. So in our increasingly globalized economy, we've done a really good job at shaking up ecological niches and species that haven't, you know, that haven't seen each other ever. And, you know, up until a few hundred years ago, there were no mammals in Australia. So over the long term... There were no what? Mammals in Australia. Oh, there were mammals in Australia. They were just different mammals. They had marsupials. They had giant... They had lots of different kangaroos. I mean, all the different, different sizes. Yes, we have introduced other ones there, definitely. You know, just like we introduced the cow here. But go ahead. So, so the question is, you know, and New York Times, they talked about how pythons are taking over the epiglades. So the question is, you know, over the long term, what do you think, what, what ecological niches may have we created by the legacy of our structure? And what do you think is going to, uh, how do you think these various invasive species are going to play out to, you know, very different continents or not to different continents in the long term? Um, I don't think we've created any ecological niches. I think nature creates ecological niches. I think that we have emptied some. And or we have introduced things from other places that have then occupied them. And part of me, you know, really laments that because there are beautiful creatures, you know, that I love that I don't see as often anymore. You know, starlings have just gone across the country and they've displaced some other birds. And they were entered because some guy had the wise idea uh, that Central Park to make New York cultured should have all the birds that are mentioned in Shakespeare, you know. So they imported all these birds, and now purple loosestrife, which is this really beautiful plant, uh, it's got big purple stalks. It came over in the ballast of ships that were serving the colonies, or that were. Or maybe, you know, they were selling us all kinds of stuff. They were filled with sand from the beaches along Scandinavia or uh, England. And when they'd empty that sand, there would be seed in there. And the seed has got like a Velcro type thing that, if, that would stick to, a, you know, either bird feathers or some animal. And it would, it seeded itself up through the drainages of the eastern seaboard to the point that it has choked out an awful lot of the native foliages that a lot of native animals depend on. And this stuff is so, so opportunistic. It's not only in all the lower 48, but it's recently appeared in Alaska. And that's going to really harm the habitat of a lot of creatures. I don't know. I mean, there's not too much that we can... It's, it's hard to stuff that genie back into the bottle. Now, some things will happen. I mentioned at one point, inevitably, you have to mention kudzu. And kudzu is very interesting because we know exactly when it came. 
Kudzu was brought as a potted plant, a gift to the United States at the at the centennial celebration in Philadelphia at Independence Hall in 1876. And somebody planted the damn thing, and it got wild, and it, you know, it crept south where it was in an environment where it could survive the winters. And now, I mean, some of the visions that people have over my book, of, you know, the, the things that are just totally overgrown. You can see it today in the south. You can see Volkswagens just covered with kudzu. Nothing is eating it yet but something eventually will. There's a feast to be had out there. I mentioned lignin and cellulose before. I mean, here's a comforting thought. Uh, one of the plastic experts of the world, a guy named Tony Andrade, told me, you know, eventually microbes will figure out that plastics are this great feast waiting out there. They just, they'll learn how to digest it. It took millions of years to learn how to digest lignin and cellulose, which is why we have these coal-bearing layers that have entire tree trunks that you can actually see. They've just metamorphosed into, into coal, but you still can see the bark and the, and the tree rings. Well, that'll happen to plastic, too. Eventually, something will eat it all. But in the meantime, a whole lot of it will get covered with silt, and we will have conglomerate rocks and things, layers of rocks bearing Barbie and Ken and <laughs> Nintendo and, and these glasses, etc. Yeah. Yep, that's... Okay, you know, the comment was that Kudzu was sponsored by the Department of, uh, of Agriculture for Erosion Control. Absolutely, and uh, that had some unforeseen consequences. I mean, there are many cases where we have introduced a species in order to control some other species. I mean, you, you, the rabbit thing in Australia, and you know, then we introduce another species to get rid of that one, and so it goes. But, you know, in a sense, we're very efficient birds, Birds fly somewhere, they drop a seed, that seed germinates, and now suddenly something colonizes some other part of the world. We fly a lot farther and a lot faster than birds, and we do this a lot more. The world is going to be different than it was from now on. We have to accept that. But as Chuck Peters from New York Botanical Garden said, you know, what are we going to do? Cry about that? What we really want is a functioning ecosystem. We want something that's filtering air and filtering water and sheltering plants so something else will happen. And we don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, Doug Irwin, the guy that I quoted about the Permian extinction, said to me at the end of our interview, it was so wonderful, and it's in here. He said, you know, who I had asked him the question which everybody asks me, like, so if we go, is someone going to occupy our, our niche you know, our intelligence niche? And the answer is, nobody knows. I mean, there's some candidates out there. It might be another primate. Baboons have learned how to live in the savannah, and they also have pretty big brains. But he says it could be anything. He said, back a few hundred million years ago, if there were zoologists around there, any one of them who would have predicted the turtle would have been laughed out of town. I mean, who would imagine that some creature was going to turn its shoulder harness inside out and, and grow it into this carapace? And he said, no. There was absolutely no precedent that would have made us predict a turtle, but this is a very successful species. So, you know, nature's a pretty creative force. It has a great deal of fun. It, you know, like my wife, the bronze sculpture. She's just playing, and so is Mother Nature. There's a group out there that uh, puts out a bumper sticker that reads, uh, let us live long and well and then die out, mm -hmm. and the premise being that we're a lot more expendable than the thousands, if not millions of species were in the process of killing off. 
Are you familiar with the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement? Yes, the Voluntary Union, uh, the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement is in my book. Um, I interviewed the founder, a guy named Les Knight, who uh, actually I was quite touched the other day at Powell's in in Portland, uh, the great independent bookstore there. I was giving a reading, and he came up afterwards, bought a book, and introduced himself. And he said, "Oh, come on, man, one kid, huh?" And the fact is, because what he is suggesting is that, look, you know, it's been great, but, I mean, it's just, it's clearly not working. So let's, let's just grow down gracefully. And I actually had, I mean, he's a very serious guy. He's a school teacher. And he doesn't, he doesn't talk to his students about this because he wouldn't be a school teacher much longer. But, but he also doesn't hide the fact that this is what he espouses. He shows up at a lot of, uh, at a lot of conferences and meetings and, and fairs and things like that with his posters. And, um, his idea is very, w- was very interesting, and I thanked him, and I thank him in the acknowledgments here, because even though I disagree with his idea, I don't want the human race to die off. I, but I do want us to come back so we are in a balance with the rest of everything on the planet, partly for selfish reasons. If we lose all those other species, we're going to lose ourselves, too. We depend on some of them. Do you remember, anybody remember in Yellow Submarine, there's this little creature who's got like a vacuum cleaner for a head, and he walks around, and he's sucking up this, and he's sucking up that just by pointing at it, and after a while, there's nothing left to suck up, so he points at his feet, and he sucks himself up, and then blank screen. I don't want that. But Les gave me a beautiful image that really kind of led me to ask this question, well, is there a happy medium between none and what we got right now? And that was, he says, you know, it would be sad not to have children. And so in the first five years after people stopped having children, suddenly the children that remained on Earth, the orphans, would become very precious, and they would be adopted, and people would really care about them. There wouldn't be homeless kids in the streets. And then as things went on and people realized that this was the end, well, it would be sad, but it would also be getting more beautiful because there would be fewer and fewer people and there would be less smog and there would be less stuff. And he sort of has this vision that in the waning years of the human race that everybody would suddenly see how lovely it was that nature came in and they would start dismantling all the really unsightly crap that we had left to really restore this to the garden from which we came. Well, I don't want it to come to that. But I do like the idea of restoring large sections of the garden. It'll be a happier place for us all, and if we have a reasonable population. Hey, I'm not on this soapbox because I think this is a grand idea. I think it's a sad idea. I'm uncomfortable with it. Next to my wife, I love my sister more than anybody. The idea of not having siblings, that's hard. But we already know from the Chinese experiment that there will be violations. There will be unwanted kids out there. There will be orphan kids. There will be kids that, you know, it won't be just planning that will produce our kids, but sometimes passion will produce some extra ones. And there will be opportunities to adopt, and there will be opportunities to have siblings for our children. We, we're going to have to do something. We're going to have to make some hard decisions. Yes, this is a hard one, but I want it to at least open up this conversation so we're thinking about it. Because we can't pretend that the numbers of us aren't a factor in this. I happen to think that it's the factor. 
I'd like to remind our listening audience that you're listening to a program of the Commonwealth Club of California. Our speaker is Alan Weissman, author of the new book, The World Without Us. And uh, we've come to a time when we have time for just one more question. Uh, Regarding the um, zero population, it seems to me that it would be a bad idea, not only for your reasons, but uh, we're already wreaking havoc on all our resources not even thinking of future generations. I would think that if we knew there weren't going to be any future generations, it would, be, it would get even worse. Well, you raise a really good point. You know, I once, when I started writing about the environment more than 20 years ago, I naively believed that because the environment is the one thing that touches us all, that it would trump all of our petty differences, our cultural you know, collisions, our political fights, our, our borders even. I wrote a book about the U.S.-Mexico border and the ecosystem between the United States and Mexico that, they sh- that we share is not only really gorgeous in many places, but it's very vital because two really important rivers that hold up civilization, the Rio Grande and the Colorado, you know, they flow in both countries and we have to learn how to cooperate to share those resources. Otherwise, all hell's going to break loose. Um... I really thought that environmental consciousness raising was going to bring us together. Instead, what happened was if once everybody began to realize that we're running out of resources, it was a free-for-all. Let's get them while they're still there to get. And suddenly, we even more intensively went out there to start mining them like crazy. It's going to take an education process. But frankly, if there are fewer people out there and if there's just a continuous loop of people rather than a steady growth, the whole concept of demand, supply demand, demand suddenly holds steady or steadier than it does today certainly. I mean, look at the things that we demand now that we never used to demand because they weren't even there. We didn't even know we needed them. The plastic bag thing, I mean, San Francisco's got it figured out, but other places, I mean, I ask everybody, Ask your grandmother about plastic bags. They didn't even exist before 1945. What did your grandmother do? You know, what, what did she do? And she went to the grocery store, and she could not put the cucumbers in one plastic bag and the tomatoes in another plastic bag and the onions in another plastic bag. Oh, food must have tasted terrible because all their, their flavors must have mixed together in the one big bag. I mean, you know, this is nonsense. Well, yeah, picking up after their dogs. Well, you know, if we didn't have as much concrete, we wouldn't worry so much because that, the dogs would be doing us a service. You know, yes, there are untold number of details that we have to think about, which help make this, the world without us, a very rich book because I have all these little details to consider about what stops happening when humans aren't around. Well, you can read all about it. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Our thanks to Alan Weissman, author of the new book, The World Without Us, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, observing its 104th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.